All right, today we're going to be learning about uh, another woman in Scripture who demonstrates Christ well and who very much show, uh, shows us how we are all called to be followers of him. We're learning about a young lady named Phoebe today, and we're going to learn about Jesus by how he used her, okay? So Phoebe, Phoebe's really cool. She shows up in one part of the Bible only, in two verses. So these two verses are probably a couple that you haven't paid a whole bunch of attention to because they're verses that show up at the end of a letter, and they're the ones whenever someone's being greeted at the end. And who here, whenever you read the epistles, really enjoy reading through the salutations lists of the things that are told about these people? Yes, thank you for the... Uh, Creed does. Yeah, he does. I also enjoy it, or else I wouldn't be teaching on things like this today. But Phoebe shows up in the beginning of chapter 16 of Romans. And here is what it says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Crenchy, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Two quick verses at the end of Romans. Very easy to overlook, very easy not to pay attention to, but we're going to learn quite a bit about Phoebe from these two verses today, and we're going to learn quite a bit about what we should be like as followers of Christ from them. It's going to be interesting, all right? So, you may ask yourselves, what do we know about Phoebe? What do we know about her, right? Well, we can start out with this, right? If it starts out with, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, we can know this. We can know that Paul sent her along with this letter to the church in Rome. All right? So Paul is sending a letter of commendation, a letter of commending or recommendation to the church in Rome. And he's sending this letter to Rome with Phoebe. Whenever recommendation letters were sent in this culture, they were handed to the person who was being recommended to carry with them. They were basically like your resume, or honestly, more like your reference letters for whenever you're going to like a job interview, right? So you would carry along this reference to a church or to any group of people you're an emissary to and hand them the letter. And this letter would say, I commend you this person for this reason, right? So she was sent along with the letter to Rome. Interesting note, the letter of commendation, or recommendation, was usually sent specifically with the person it's recommending. So who carried the letter of Rome to the Romans? Phoebe. She didn't just carry along her own recommendation. She carried along the entire epistle, very likely. She was the one who was sent to bring this letter to the Romans. Now, interesting side note about this. We know the letters of commendation were often hand-delivered by the one being commended, and we can assume she was the letter-bearer of the epistle because of it, and letter-bearers acted as envoys on behalf of the letter's authors. So, as someone is carrying along a letter from one author or one person to a group of people in another area... You guys, have you ever had an issue where, like, you're texting somebody and what you're saying means one thing, but what they're hearing is something completely different or reading something completely different? That's because things like body language and tone of voice convey meaning a lot in how we communicate, right? So text by itself lacks that sometimes, all the time, until emojis got added in. And then it's perfect. We fixed it with emojis. Fixed it. But... 
oftentimes it was possible for letters or things of this nature to be construed falsely if you don't know how the letter was supposed to be read tone-wise or if you don't know what was being person. So the person who was carrying a letter like the epistle to Romans would be taught by Paul what it means so that she could explain that meaning when she got there. So that the letter carrier could explain it. If you step a little bit further in history, probably than we're at right now, and you step into the time whenever rhetoric was being used a lot in Greece, rhetoricians, whenever they were sending letters, didn't just send a person. They sent someone who was wholly and fully trained in how to present that letter to the point that there were specific hand signals and movements and rhetoric that were used to convey certain meanings. And there was this weird sphere-like cage that people would train in where you would step in like, this means I'm joking. This means sarcasm. Like, whatever, right? And the letter carrier would be trained to carry these things along with them so that they could walk to a place and carry on the exact meaning of the rhetorician. They had a lot of teaching authority. Paul sent her and authorized her to help convey the meaning of the book of Romans to the Roman church. That is really cool. How much do you have to be trusted to be the one who is properly carrying Paul's words to a church? Sadly, she probably had knowledge of how this letter is supposed to be interpreted that we now lack because, you know, she wasn't here to show us or tell us how it was meant, what the tone was, which parts were sarcastic, which parts weren't. Luckily, Paul's sarcasm, usually super obvious, so that's helpful. And Paul is such a good writer that we can carry a lot without knowing his tone. But she probably had better understanding than us by a long shot. We know this as well. We know she's a follower of Christ because he commends her as our sister, Phoebe. This says a lot, actually. We know that she is a follower of Christ in coming from what was a heavily pagan city. We'll talk about that in a second. We know that she is a person who carries with her Paul's recommendation because of her faith. And if you notice, while he recommends quite a few people at the end of his letters, he doesn't recommend everybody. Not everyone who is a follower of Christ gets his recommendation. Some get the opposite. Hey, tell them to cut it out, right? Or never listen to these people. No, he carried with her, he gave her his commendation as a follower of Christ. She's a believer, she follows. We can probably assume she's a Gentile and not Jewish. You know why we can assume that? What's her name? Phoebe. Is that a Jewish name or a Greek name? a Greek name. In fact, it's the Greek name of a goddess, and it's the feminized version of the male god who was known. It's the feminized version of the male god that was celebrated in Corinth. So, y'all here know Jesus pretty much, right? Many of us know Jesus. How likely are you to name your child Baal? Probably not, right? This is my son, Baal, and my daughter, Asherah. No? Okay. For some reason, she likes placing poles in the ground. I don't understand. No? A little bit of pagan humor. All right. (laughs) So she was probably not born to a family that was Jewish. She was very likely Gentile. Right? Because of things that are going to be happening a little further on, we can probably assume she's wealthy. 
because poor people didn't usually travel across multiple countries. Uh, they would travel some, but there wasn't that much social mobility unless you were carried to your place of captivity as a slave or as a worker. Uh, and this was not that. She's being sent. She's not actually being right? And then there's this. She was a servant of a specific church. Right here, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Crunchy. That word, a servant, it can be taken in one of two ways, both of which speak highly to her, and both of which Paul probably intended. The first one is this. That word for servant is the same word as the office of deacon. And it very likely is talking about an office of deacon because the way that this is written out, whenever it says to you, we, uh, a servant in the church of Crenthi, obviously she's female, but the term a servant is the male version in Greek. It's probably just the name of the office. Because if she was just being called a servant, they would have called her a deaconess or a uh, diakosunes, something like that. I can't pronounce Greek. I don't know it. But she was probably a leader in this church in a city, one who held office in the church. But not only did she hold office, guys, uh, the phrase servant, even if you don't want to hold her, fine, she's not, she's, if someone wants to say she's not an office holder, no, that's just supposed to mean servant. She just did a lot of stuff at the church. She's not a leader. There are people who will argue that. Then it's worth noticing this. He introduced her and recommended her as a servant of this church, how did he introduce himself at the beginning of the book of Romans? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, <laughs> called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The first thing he uses to explain who he is is the same word that he first uses to explain who she is. He recommends her in the same way he recommends himself. If you don't know this, Paul had never been to Rome whenever he wrote the book of Romans. He had not been there before. He had not visited this church, didn't know these people. So the things he writes about himself, he's introducing himself to them. He introduces himself in the same way he introduces her. What do you think that says about her? She's pretty cool. I like it. We know she was heading to Rome to address a specific problem because of how the way this verse is written. Uh, this one takes a little bit of Greek as well, which I cannot pronounce the words. I don't have to point to it here. It says this, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need. Where it says and help her for whatever way she may need, the terms that are being used there are terms that are specific for the help. They're terms that are specific to someone who's facing a lawsuit, providing legal help in some way, shape, or form, Right? In the book of Romans, the only other time this is used is whenever he literally talks about lawsuits among believers and how they're not supposed to happen. And so she is going there, and they, he asks for her to be provided help for this thing she's facing, probably a legal issue. Now, because of the fact that she is heading to Rome to address a legal issue, we can assume a couple of different things. One, she was probably rich. Again, right? Because usually, if you had a problem with a super poor person in a local area the local area's people would deal with it. And also, if she's heading to Rome for this, that probably says something about her citizenship status. Because citizens of Rome, if they were caught up, could appeal to Rome and to Caesar as an appeal to whatever had happened to them wherever they were at, right? So we've learned a lot about Phoebe so far, right? 
She's a follower of Christ. She was likely Gentile, but became a follower of Christ. She either held office in the church at Crenshaw or is introduced in the same way Paul introduced himself. She is heading towards Rome because she is facing a lawsuit. And she is being sent to carry the letter of Romans there and to carry with it the weight of Paul's authority. She is likely wealthy. And she likely helped the church a ton in whatever she was doing, right? How do we know we helped the church a ton? Well, this next section is pretty important. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. That may just be like, it may sound to you like, oh, okay, well, she, she helped some people out a lot. She helped out other people and she helped out Paul. But if you understand what a patron and client relationship was like in Rome, you would understand that the concept of patronage denotes in some way, shape, or form authority or at least status. You see, in a patron-client relationship, there were two people who were in a mutually helpful relationship with each other. One of them, the patron, is usually a rich or wealthy person or someone with immense social status who would help their client by either providing funds for them to do something or helping them with political needs or helping them with political office. Someone who has influence helping someone who needs it. And that person who needs it thereby honestly helping back to the person who patronizes them, usually by saying things like, hey, look at how awesome this person is, all right? There's another example of patronage in the Bible, by the way, uh, at least probably, but very likely. And that's Luke, who wrote the books of Luke and Acts. Whenever he's first writing these books, it starts out at the beginning and it says, uh, thank you, O Theophilus. I'm writing this to you for this reason. The way that that book has started, both Luke and Acts, each of those times, that, uh, that opening where he explains that he's writing these books on behalf of Theophilus, that name Theophilus is probably a person, though here's the tricky part, it could possibly mean lovers of God in general, but it's probably a person. The way they're written, it's structured as if that person, Theophilus, was a patron providing Luke what he needed to be able to go and research for the Gospels. Theophilus wanted to know what was happening in, Ju- in Judea, what was happening about Jesus, so he commissioned Luke to go and learn. Gave him funds, gave him the ability to travel, sent him on his way to learn and study whatever happened, and probably carried with him uh, documents that allow the Roman authorities to let him know that he's allowed to be doing this. Patron-client relationships were pretty important in Rome, and Paul calls her a patron of many, likely including the entire church of the area she was around. And then he specifically says she was a patron of me as well. She enabled him to do his ministry. Just like the women enabled Jesus to do their ministry in Luke. Likely whenever he was in Corinth, she helped him. So check this out. One other thing that's worth noting. This is how far she traveled, right? This down here is Corinth. Bottom of Greece. She traveled all the way up to Rome in Italy. Not a very small amount of area to run from, right? And I don't know if she went by land or by boat. They probably went by boat in this case, which again denotes wealth of some type. But she traveled an extremely far distance to get there. But there's something else that's interesting about this too, which is probably very helpful in helping us understand something about Phoebe too. If we're talking about books in the New Testament that have some things that discuss issues with women in authority, issues that 
like local areas that probably had issues with women in authority and therefore speak very difficultly about women in authority. Where do you think that place is? What, what book of the Bible would you hold to? What book of the Bible says something like women should keep silent in the church? Corinthians, right? Check this out. So this whole thing here, see this here? Here's Corinth. Boop. That's Corinth. This is Crunchy. Where she was from was less distance than we are now from the north of North Canton. She was right from the area of Corinth. This is basically a suburb of Corinth at this point. If you know anything about Corinth, this was one of the passageways that people would use to skip over having to go through and around all this area whenever they had boats, right? People who wanted to sail from here and up or from other parts like Jerusalem up and through, they wouldn't sail around the edge. They would literally carry their boats. They would beach their boats at Crunchy, and they would literally be rolled or carried across the isthmus to the other side to continue onwards. It was part of the Corinthian economy. It was part of the Corinthian subsidy. She was likely from an area right outside of Corinth that was completely held down or held over the same influences that Paul was writing about whenever he said in Corinthians, women should keep silent in this church. This helps us understand that verse too. Because Paul obviously was saying you can learn from her. <laughs> she probably didn't have to keep silent when she carried and read the letter in the church. It's kind of hard to do. Let me read this to you. Sorry, I'm not allowed to talk. She read it. So we have Phoebe, commended of Paul, sent to Rome a servant of a church called to be welcomed by her brothers and sisters, called to be helped in the lawsuit or whatever she was facing from the city that is near Corinth, right next to it, had many of the same issues that Paul was working through, and that was a patron of the church, the people there, and of Paul himself. a lot. You can learn about a person in two verses, right? Now, understanding that she understood Paul's theology well enough to carry this letter, there's probably something else that we should probably mention. She would probably hate or have hated the fact that 2,000 years or so after she carried that letter, there's a church that follows Jesus that is spending their entire Sunday morning talking about her. She would probably much rather prefer we talk about Jesus. She bore Romans to this church to proclaim Christ boldly because Jesus is what was important to her. Do you think someone who was born Gentile, who becomes a follower of Christ, that is well known enough to proclaim Paul's word and be a patron of Paul and patron of the church there and be a leader in the church in her city, do you think that person valued Jesus and what he did for her? Yeah. Guys, something happened. She learned something that changed the way that she lived. She learned something that made her shift from being a Gentile to being this type of person. That change was 
drastic enough that she didn't just change her entire life herself, but that she worked and put her money towards making sure other people learned the same thing. And then she carried these words to other people herself. Jesus is what she would have wanted us to focus on. So real quickly, let's talk about this God she serves. Jesus loves you. Now, he loves you in the pit of your brokenness, right? In Romans, we hear that we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous, not one of us. We all need salvation, right? We know that if we are all sinners and if we are all broken, we deserve eternal separation from God. If we cannot properly proclaim or properly uh, uh, reflect his glory, we deserve to not be with him. Now, fun story with that. If that's the case, if no one is righteous, if everyone sins, and if sin means that you have no reason to deserve to be in God's presence, what state does that put us in in the world? How good are we? How well off are we? Is there anybody who could actually, therefore, deserve to get themselves into heaven? No. Luckily, we don't have to. The gift of God is salvation given through Christ Jesus our Lord. We could not afford to be close to Jesus because of our own actions. But he is good enough to purchase our actions, to purchase us back, to pay for our actions too. His goodness is so good, it doesn't just earn him the right standing before the Father, it earns us right standing before the Father too. This is why he came, he lived perfectly. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. He did it to glorify his Father and to bring you into relationship with him, to bring me into relationship with him too. This is the nuts and bolts of the gospel. And as Paul then explains in Romans, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, he rose from the dead, we will be saved. And that confession means literally bearing witness to the fact that he is who he says he is, that he is our God, our Lord, that he matters more to us than anything else, that we are to submit ourselves to him completely, that there should be nothing of me that does not belong to him. And then truly believe and understand that he rose from the dead which is understanding that he did what he said he would do, that he had the power to defeat sin and death, that in doing so he broke the power of the curse, and in doing so he earned us life that we didn't deserve beforehand. That's the message she carried, along with a whole bunch of other stuff, because Romans teaches on a lot of things, but one of the big things it carries through is who Jesus is and what he did, right? She would tell you about Jesus. But then there's something else we can pick up from this as well. She was Gentile. She likely was, uh, I can't even say likely, she may have been a, a nominal pagan, right? Pagan in name only. She may have had no bearing or status in churches, or she may have been whole up in them. Who knows? In churches that didn't follow God. We don't know what her life was like before she met Jesus, other than the fact that she probably wasn't Jewish. But her life changed. In Phoebe, we can see 
that our lives, after we become followers of Christ, should not look exactly like our lives did before we knew him. He should affect our lives. Our lives don't change to earn grace or salvation. No, he has given that to us freely. Our lives change in recognition of what he's done and in recognition of who he's made us to be. So, one thing that's probably worth considering is this. As you are remembering back when you became a follower of Jesus, if you can remember, because some people became followers of Jesus early enough, they don't even have a time beforehand they remember, right? I'm not one of those people. I became a follower of Jesus at 16, 17, and that was, I said the words at 16 or 17. I didn't understand the concept of following him until I was 18 or 19. So my uh, youth was not about Jesus. My switch to maturity and adulthood happened whenever I was beginning to understand the ramifications of who Jesus was, right? As you look back at who you were before you knew him or who you were before you understood that he's to be your Lord, and you look at your life today, are you any different? Has your understanding of Jesus affected you to the point that you realize that there are parts about your life that should change? cheated. It affected the way that she lived her life. It affected the way that she uh, served the church. It affected the way that she served those around her. It affected the way she spent her money. It affected the way that she spent her time. She didn't have to go to Rome and spend time hanging out with the church and dropping this letter off. She could have just gone there, focused on her lawsuit, been done with it. No, it affected the way she changed her, she her time likely changed her priorities a ton too because she didn't prioritize teaching or leading a church before she knew Jesus at least not one that follows Jesus right but she did afterwards her life changed ours should too We talked about lordship for a quick second. This is what lordship is about. If there's anything in your life that you know is ungodly and you're holding on to it and saying, I want to keep doing this thing. I know I'm not supposed to, but I want to keep it. That is choosing to not recognize Jesus' lordship over that part of your life. That's saying, you know what? I care about this part of my life more than I care about God. I love this part of me more than I love this part of God. I love these actions I partake more than I love God. What should change? This concept, guys, is called repentance and sanctification. These are big words in Scripture, but they're important words. Repentance means recognizing our sin and our fault, recognizing whenever we do wrong and we do not glorify God with our lives, recognizing that it occurs, and then literally turning around and walking away from it. In Hebrews, we're talking literally. That word was the same thing as if you were walking east. If you repented, you stopped, turned around, and started walking west. Because Hebrew, super literal language. I enjoy it. Greek had more of a philosophical undertaking to it. And so Greek talked about now not just a turning of your body, but a turning of your heart and mind. And so if your heart and your mind were pushing you in one direction, to repent was to recognize that where your heart and mind were leading you were wrong and to be willing to say, this should change and to literally turn your heart and mind to go in a different direction. Hebrew emphasized the physical. Greek emphasized the spiritual or mental or emotional. But guess what? That means it matters in all of them. 
all of you that makes up you should be willing to repent if you recognize wrongness in your life. Now, please note, repentance by itself, awesome, not enough to actually change our lives because we're not strong enough to change ourselves, right? We can't. I can't. I'm not good enough, strong enough, or faithful enough to make myself glorify God well. But this is where the concept of sanctification comes in. Sanctification is a big word that basically means that as you are a follower of Christ over time, God himself will make you more and more like Jesus. He will change your heart. He will change your mind. He will change your, your body and make you more and more like him. Now, this is a never-ending process because we are basically infinitely imperfect people. And so as we are living our lives, we will constantly be undergoing sanctification. We will constantly be undergoing this process where we learn more and more about who Jesus is. And we more and more start to reflect him. Until we die, before he comes back. Whenever he returns, guys, that sanctification process will be over. That's our promise, that we will actually be perfected people. Wholly able to reflect God's glory because of what he has done for us. So one thing that we should do is this. Have you guys ever heard the part of the Bible whenever a man runs up to Jesus and says, please help, please help. I think it's my daughter is sick. And Jesus says, if you believe, she'll be well. And the man says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. That particular way that that person felt is how you should probably feel whenever you are wanting to move forward in Christ, right? Lord God, I want to glorify you. Help me where I'm not glorifying you. Please change my heart, change my eyes, change my life. Allow me to glorify you with my life. I believe. Help me where I don't believe. Trust me, if you ask him to do that, oh, he'll do it. Doesn't always feel pretty. It's not always the most easy thing in the world. And it's worth noting, it'll probably make your conscience burn in some areas you didn't expect it to burn. Your conscience will be seared because you'll be learning ways in which you don't glorify Jesus. I can tell you that from experience. It happens. Oh my goodness, I was wrong. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Steps into another thing that we're big on in our church too, so change life. But then here's the other one. Da-da-da! Stewardship. I enjoy this word. There's a reason why whenever we discuss membership in City Church, we don't actually have membership because we think membership is a poor word to use for it because everybody is a member of the body of Christ, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you're a member of his body. You're a part of it. Whether or not you're working in the way you're supposed to, that's a different thing. But if I break my big toe, it's still part of my body, even if it's not functioning in the way it's supposed to function, right? You're a part of the body of Christ. You're a member of the body if you are a follower of his. That was relatively impressive, actually. I'm just going to throw that out there. Or, or that person has one of the cars that does that whenever it's going from 0 to 12. <laughs> yeah, possible. Cars sound super impressive, but it's like an Impala. I don't know. All right. Stewardship. We don't like the phrase membership whenever we're discussing people who are saying, you know what, I'm in. I want to be part of what city is doing. We use the phrase stewardship, which is a word in the Bible that is pulled from a Greek word that actually means one who basically takes charge over or is willing to manage something. 
she was willing to do that in the churches she was in, right? If you are willing to be a deacon in a church, you are willing to take part in it and be in it and to take some form of ownership over it. Worth knowing, whenever Romans was written, at the time, deacon was still an office in fluctuation as to whether it was holy an office or not. It became one by the time the book of Timothy was written. But whether or not deacon meant holding an office, not quite sure. But deacon probably meant the one who was willing to give up their home for the church to meet in. That's likely where it originated from, the one who provided the meeting place. She at least did that. She was willing to offer her house for the church to gather in. Bless you. And we also know that she didn't just manage that. She also stewarded the words that were handed to her. She carried this letter on to Rome. We know she did because we wouldn't have it otherwise. She stewarded the word that she was handed to take, and she delivered it faithfully. She stewarded her finances. She provided for those around her who were in need. She patronized those who were in need around her, the many. She patronized Paul. She supported the spreading of the word of God. This is what stewardship is for us, guys. It's people who recognize that you are called to help support and provide and manage and lead city. The church in Crenshaw needed stewarded. So does city. At some point in the near future, by the way, this is a plug. We're going to be starting up our stewardship classes again. Ta-da! They're going to run following services on Sunday because the Bible study is beforehand. And we're going to run them like this. We're going to do, there's four classes to the stewardship class. The first floor will go one, two, three, four. Then we're going to take a week break. Then we're going to do one, two, three, four again. And this is so that people who have schedules where they can only be here every other week can still go to all four classes in an eight-week period or a nine-week period. So we're going to run one, two, three, four, time off, one, two, three, four, and then we're going to have a party for all of our new stewards. And then next quarter, we'll do it again. We're going to start rebuilding up and building up this concept of stewardship within our church. Classes, by the way, will be a half an hour long or so, maybe 40 minutes. They'll be following the church service, and by the time we start them, hopefully we'll be upstairs, so they should be in the cafe following, okay? Elevator works now, by the way. I'm just tossing that out. Yeah. So we'll be moving upstairs soon, too. Yeah. She was willing to steward what God had provided to her and to use it to further his purposes for his glory. This is what we're called to do, too. Her life changed because of what Jesus is, what he did for her. She changed her life. He changed her life. She taught and led well. And even in the small amount that we have here to know about her, we can know that she glorified Jesus with her life. Or else Paul wouldn't have commended her. I love learning about people like this because we can learn from their uh, examples. We can learn from what God has used them for in the past. We can learn about how we should be because of who he is. Right? We're going to keep doing this, guys. Next two weeks, Jake's preaching. He's going to be walking through two different women in Scripture. Following that, I believe we have Mandy Cotaspoti from Love Canton coming in to teach. She's going to be teaching for us. 
then we'll have a couple weeks left, and we'll be stepping right in to Easter. Okay? Now, that is the end of the sermon. Sermon done. 36 minutes. Boom, I hit my time. All right? But I got something else to say real quick. So, for me, one thing that has been happening is this. Uh, This is something that Emily actually challenged me on. Who here knows Emily? Everyone knows Emily? Emily? Yeah, check. No, Emily? This is something she challenged me on uh, during our last staff meeting on Friday. Because sometimes our staff are jerks and make me learn things about myself. Right? Here's what I learned from her this time. We were talking about what things were like in the building, how we're still working through getting the building up and running, how we're still waiting for the, at the time the elevator was done, but we were still waiting for certain parts of it to be ready, while we're still waiting for us to have our cleaning done and still waiting for us to have the outside looking good in this place, right? And I, because of this, I'm like, you know what, I'm holding off on heavily trying to invite people in until we're ready. And Emily pointed this out. Hey, you know what? There's never going to be a time when we're ready. Life will always be messy. Something else will always happen. Something else will always break and break down because that's what life is like, right? So we need to be willing to welcome people into our mess too. Not just into our prettiness, but also into our mess. So I don't know about you. If you've been holding off like me and welcoming in friends and family to come and be part of City or part of uh, the 242, is that what it's called? Yeah. 242, 224, 930, the 90210, yeah? Or with people like at the Oracle Ministry, things of that nature. If you've been holding off and welcoming people in until we're ready, please note, we'll probably never be ready. It's cool to welcome in and now. I'm going to start working on doing it myself. Hopefully, we will be looking a little better in the building relatively quickly, but even if that doesn't happen for another couple weeks or another month or two, we can still be proclaiming Christ even here. Make sense? All right, I'm going to pass this over to Jake. Jake, if you wouldn't mind, at the end of saying communion, can you pray for us, please? Thank you. Thank you. So uh, throughout the entire week, I've been dreading communion. Or I shouldn't say dreading communion in the sense of the act of communion and participating, but like what to speak on. Because, I mean... I think we all know some of the tragedy and uh, heartache that's happened this week, and even through the global or national tragedy that's happened, um, even within our church, there's a 12-year-old boy that passed this week as well um, that a lot of our church members knew. Um, And so just like dealing with this tragedy, dealing with this heartache um, was really challenging for me throughout the week. And um, I was trying to think too, you know, uh, oftentimes these things happen and we're looking for these answers. We're demanding these responses. We're demanding justice and not that that's inherently wrong we should be seeking justice but um, it's important to know that uh, we don't have the answers and as, as, as much as we want to try to bash praying and going to God about it um, we need to keep in mind that politically and things like that or change and stuff like that isn't salvific that's not what brings about our overall truth and love and we should be seeking these things and so naturally my mind as I was praying on it brought me to Micah 6.8 which is a verse in uh, I don't like to use the, uh, well, I don't like absolutes, but uh, I, I feel like it summarizes the Old Testament very well. And it's the idea that we're supposed to be doing justice, but as we're doing justice, we're supposed to be seeking mercy. And as we're seeking mercy, we're supposed to be walking humbly with our God. And so any outcome that we have with this through prayer um, and, and meditation and being with these families and being with each other, 
We need to make sure that any outcome as we're trying to do justice is doing that, is it's maintaining mercy. Is the answer we're coming to, is it one of love, of mercy, compassion? Is it replicating what Christ has done, or is it replicating something out of fear or something out of our own personal control? And more importantly, do we really think that a 200-word or less tweet or Facebook argument is going to change someone's perspective? Probably not. And it can, but it probably won't. It's more or less going to happen when you're spending time with these people, where you're mourning with these people, where it's not a matter of, this is what I believe, this is what you believe, but whom are you as a person? What hurt have you endured? How can we make sure this hurt doesn't happen? Again, and more importantly, there will be a time where that hurt ends, and Christ, Christ will redeem this entire world. But we need to be pursuing this justice. And so I'm not just saying that, okay, just pray about it till you feel good. We need to be pursuing these justices. I mean, Martin Luther King, many great men and women have stood up for these injustices and have changed culture for the better. But it's important that as we make these changes, how and what ways are we doing it? Is it out of love or is it out of fear? Is it pointing towards Christ and redemption or is it pointing towards our own personal control and trying to hold on to things as opposed to surrendering over to God? But I think about that during the time of communion because this is what Christ did. He literally broke himself for the world. And that is what we are called to do. We are called to be breaking ourselves for the world. We're called to be pouring ourselves out for the world. Not just saying, my thoughts and prayers are with you, which is important. We need to make sure that those are being put into action. Christ removed himself to pray and to meditate and spend time with his Father. And then he went out and he moved. And he did. And how did he, what was his end result? Giving himself over for us so that we could have a betterment. So as we go through these weeks, as we struggle with these hard times, uh, feel free to talk to us. I mean, Chris has a phenomenal knowledge on history uh, and just even culture um, that I don't have. And that's why I love having good conversations with him because my background is more in philosophy and ideology and things like that. So usually when we're talking about things like that, because the church should be a place where these conversations can happen. This should be the place where if you're saying, this is really bothering me, how can we go about changing this? And I assure you that neither him or I have an answer. We don't, but but uh, but we but we need to talk about it. We need to be discussing these matters and trying to seek change for the better, not just for our church, but for the community and for the world. Um, but with that, uh, make sure you're seeking out wise counsel. Like I said, you know, like I don't have a background in history or in cultural analysis like he does, and he does a phenomenal job. And so it's great when we can have these conversations. We can give this big long. You know, and I can go to like a big long example of like, hey, historically speaking, this is what's happened, and I can argue back in the sense, or even dialogue back, in the sense of like, philosophically speaking, though, how does this go about? Is it pointing towards a good? Is the end result a good, or is it just something a a, a result? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, but that's the thing is, make sure this dialogue and those things are happening on other platforms than social media that they're happening in your bars, they're happening in your workplace, but with a sound argument. And that last part of Micah 6.8, walk humbly, be willing to listen, be willing to be wrong, assume that maybe the truth that you adhere to is wrong, even when you are going throughout scripture and stuff like that. Yes, believe in the gospel, believe that God is good, there's virtues we can hold on to, but maybe your idea of hell is off. Maybe your idea of women in leadership is off. Are you allowing those things to be challenged? Are you first going into an argument or into dialogue assuming you are right and assuming you have answers? And this is what Christ does. I mean, even today in our Bible study, we talked about you know, him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, to that culture, to those, the Jews that were standing there, they knew that he was pointing back to Psalms. They knew that Christ was pointing back to saying, as I'm being crucified, I'm going to recite a song to you that you guys know, and you're going to recognize that, oh, crap, 
were crucified. This is what has been prophesied. We, we are crucifying the guy that is God. He is the Messiah. So even as Christ is dying, before he lets out his last breath, he loves those that are crucifying him, that are intentionally crucifying him. So if we come to any answer, if we come to anything that's going to build back this body of Christ, we need to allow ourselves to be broken together, but we need to be built back together by Christ. And Christ exemplified that by doing what? Giving of himself, breaking of himself, pouring himself out. So whatever result we come to, whatever answer we come to, make sure that it maintains that and just try to, at least as I've tried to, is reflect on that Micah 6-8 passage. The idea that we need to be doing justice, seeking mercy, mercy and, and walking humbly with God. Um, and also here at City Church, we have an open communion. Um, what that means is if you're a follower of Christ, whatever de- denomination uh, that you follow, you're more welcome to participate in it with us. Um, and I'm going to pray real quick, and feel free to come up and participate in the elements whenever you're ready. Heavenly Father, I thank you just for the goodness that you are. I thank you that you created, um, and Lord, I pray that you would allow uh, one of our image-bearing qualities of creating to be used to glorify you, Lord, that it would build love and not destruction, Lord, that we would bring about goodness into this world and not wickedness, Lord. And though the wickedness is here, Lord, may we be reminded that you have triumphed over it. It is done, you have conquered it, and one day there will be peace again, Lord. One day everything will come to glorify you, and your goodness will be proclaimed throughout all of eternity, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we go throughout our weeks, Lord, that we would be seeking uh, to do justice, Lord, not just through um, feeling good because we got a like, a lot of likes on a comment, Lord, or a lot of likes on a post, but because we're actually doing good, Lord, to glorify you, not to gain recognition for ourselves, Lord. And as we're doing that, Lord, may our um, pursuits be that of mercy. May we have compassion on people, Lord. May we extend the grace that your gospel and what you've done for us, may that extend to all of culture and ourselves. And, Lord, I pray that we'd walk humbly, Lord, that we'd recognize that we don't have the answers, but you do. May we depend on you, may we turn to you, may we trust in you, and may we love each other in the way that you love us. Lord, I thank you for just this church. I thank you for the city of Canton. I thank you that we're able to participate and even talk about you in this nation, Lord. And, Lord, it's in your heavenly name we pray. Jesus Christ, amen.